Thank you, ladies. I had uh, flashbacks watching the handbell choir. Uh, well, I grew up in New Jersey, and when I was a kid, we went to a Methodist church. It was not a Bible-believing Methodist church, but boy, it was big on music, and they had three uh, choirs. The adult choir would be behind the minister, two youth choirs on either side, and then, of course, we did Advent, you know, marching, walking down the weeks till Christmas, and I remember they'd always have a handbell choir, a handbell orchestra right before Christmas, and somehow I got roped into it. Now, I took piano lessons for three years and could never learn to read music. And so when you're in the handbells and you don't know how to read music, they have to circle your notes. And, um, of course, when you're a tall kid, I was always the tall kid, you always get one of the big bells, too. And so I was just thinking, this was beautifully done. And I would, I would, I probably wouldn't love, but I would be interested in going back and seeing a video of me watching and making sure I got that bell at the right time. It is nice to hear handbells done well. And it really was beautiful tonight. Thank you for all of you ministering. We are going to go to 2 Peter tonight, 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter 1, I hope you got an afternoon rest, and I'm glad you came back tonight to be in the Lord's house. I don't know if you ever uh, would have divulged a story to you or not, but when your pastor was down at Pensacola, Bob Taylor was pastor at Campus Church, and I'm told one time he went into... Brother Taylor's office, and there was a red phone sitting on the desk. And he said, Pastor Taylor, what is that? He said, well, Lauren, that is the hotline. He said, the hotline? To the White House? He said, oh, no, to heaven. He said, to heaven? Well, how does it work? He said, well, there are times when we have an urgent matter and he said, you know, we have to get on the hotline and get some immediate answers. It really expedites things. He said, that's incredible. He said, you know, I've been uh, thinking about proposing. There's a girl I'm kind of interested in. Oh, really? He said, any chance I could make use of the hotline? So Pastor Taylor said, Wait, we don't normally do this. And he said, it'd be better if you didn't circulate news about this. But, yeah, I think that'd be fine. So Mr. Regeer got on the hotline, and he was on there for about 40 minutes. And when he came out, he had his answer. He said, that's amazing. He said, what do I Pastor Taylor said, well, let me go check with the secretary here. And when he went over, and he said, uh, okay, well, it'd be uh, $50. He wrote him a check. Oh, for all of you who used to Apple Pay, these are little slips of paper we used to sign, and they would transfer money. So he said, I uh, wrote him a check. For $50, he said, that's some of the best money I ever spent. Both up in Indianapolis. And Pastor Taylor went out to visit Brother Regeer. And one day he walked in the office, and there on the desk sat a red phone. He said, amazing. Keeping up with the Joneses, are you? He said, Pastor Taylor, that was one of the best inventions I ever made use of. Pastor Taylor said, you know, Brother Gary, he said, I had an issue come up. In fact, uh, I was just alerted to it on my way over here. I need some immediate answers. Is there any chance I could ask you to return the favor? He said, oh, no, by all means, I owe you. And he said, sure. So Pastor Taylor went in the office. He got on the red phone. He was in there for 90 minutes. So he came out after an hour and a half. He said, well, we got that resolved. He said, uh, thanks for letting me use the phone. How much do I owe you? Brother Regeer said, well, that would be 50 cents. He said, 50 cents? Brother Regeer said, well, yeah, you see, from here, it's a local call. Now, some of you remember pay phones. 
<laughs> Some of you remember local calls. Now, you all knew that I made up the story. All right, red phone. You say, ah. Oh. But you know why I made up the story? Wouldn't it be nice if there really were a hotline to heaven? Hey, think about this. If there were a hotline to heaven, do you think you might make use of it? Some of you said it depends if it was $50 or 50 cents, but you know, I bet if there are some circumstances in your life, you'd make use of the red phone. Truth of the matter is, there's no red phone, but we have something better than a hotline to heaven. In fact, most likely, you're holding a copy of it in your lap tonight, and I want, to, I want you to take this book. It is the Word of God. I want you to open it with me. It's a message I've entitled, Hearing from Heaven. Hearing from Heaven. We're in 2 Peter chapter 1, 2 Peter chapter 1. And I'm going to pick up in verse number 16. We'll cover verses 16 to 21 here. Second Peter 1, verse 16. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the coming or the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto you do well that you take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. The prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Peter says, you know what, this which we're relating to you, some of you have said, well, must have been great to be with Jesus. We never knew him. You and the other apostles, you right there, that, that must have been incredible. You had such an advantage over us. Peter writes to them, and this is in a time of suffering. I was just studying this in my personal quiet time, um, this particular passage. Passage yesterday. This is written uh, around 65 AD or so. Widespread persecution broke out under Nero. And there was, this book addresses the topic of suffering. And some are thinking, yeah, we, boy, it would have been great to know Jesus in person. I, you know, you and the other apostles, no wonder you have such strong faith. Peter says, we were there. We were with him in the Holy Mount. He's talking about the Mount of Transfiguration. Yeah, we, we heard the audible voice from heaven saying, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. But you, my dear readers, we of something even better. We, those of us who met the Lord in person and those of you who never did, you and I have something in common. It's a more sure word of prophecy. Now think about this. How can this be greater than audibly hearing the voice of God himself? That's what I intend to show you tonight. Not only so you'll relish it, but you'll take full advantage of the opportunity you have which was a greater advantage than the apostles themselves had. And I'll show you that in the next few minutes. There are four times in the Gospels that we see or hear of an audible voice from heaven giving us some instruction about Jesus. In fact, three of the four times we know were God the Father speaking. I'm going to walk you through each of these four, and just so happens I'll take one incident out of each of the four Gospels. We'll look at the four times the voice was heard from heaven, and then we'll come back and close in this passage. It'll be a very simple message tonight. We'll just look at the four opportunities that the voice was heard, what we learned from those, and that'll, that'll be our outline tonight. 
It's going to start with number one, Jesus' birth. And let's go to Luke chapter 2. So it's going to start to sound a lot like Christmas. Luke chapter 2. Let me pick up in verses 8 through 11. Luke 2, verses 8 through 11. Many of you know these words. You'll hear them in the next couple weeks. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. First time the voice is heard from heaven is at Jesus' birth. Now we're told the shepherds were abiding in the field. They're keeping watch over their flock by night. So it's night. I remember going to Israel. I only got to go one time, at least thus far in my life. I've been once. It was back in 2001, pre-9-11. In fact, it was February. I remember because it was the week that Dale Earnhardt died in the Daytona 500. I'm, I'm not an avid race fan. I follow sports. I follow all kinds of news, but I'll distinctly remember that week. I was in Israel um, on a tour group with uh, evangelist Tom Farrell and uh, some people out of Tri-City Baptist Church in Kansas City, and I'm from Eagle Heights Baptist in Kansas City, so a bunch of young couples and some other pastors that were there, and uh, my wife was not able to go the night, the two nights before we went, our daughter ended up in the hospital with the flu, she was just a one-year-old, and she was on IV, Um, thank the Lord she recovered, but Angela didn't feel like it would be the right time to leave our little one, obviously, so I went, I'm over there by myself with this group, and uh, I remember Jimmy DeYoung was the, was the tour host when we got there. And so, well, interestingly enough, both Brother Farrell and Brother DeYoung are now with the Lord. And they know insights now that they didn't know then. And I remember we're taking nine days to tour the country, and it was incredible to me. I, back then, I had a little uh, handheld mini cam, video cam, with a little miniature uh, reels, you remember? And so I am videoing, I'm writing like fury every day in my journal, and I could hardly keep up. There was so much to cover. And I remember we went to places that I didn't even know were on the biblical map, and I have not forgotten them. But one place I knew was Bethlehem. And I remember the day we went there, we, we toured Bethlehem. We went to one of the carpentry shops where they, they take olive wood, and they make olive wood-covered Bibles and other trinkets and such. And, and Bethlehem is actually under... Um, Palestinian control now, so you, some days you get in, some days you can't. We got in that day, but I remember when we left Bethlehem to head back over to Jerusalem, which is, I don't know, 10 or 12 miles, we got in the bus, and all of a sudden our bus driver pulled over, and I thought, what is he doing? Wes, I'm sure you have times like this where people think, what is the bus driver doing? So we got over, and the tour guide said, all right, come on, everybody, let's get out, and we're going to walk out here, and to me, it looked like we were walking out to a gravel pit. It's this terraced land, just gravel. And I thought, why are we wasting our time coming to this little pit? So we all gathered around. There might have been 30 or 40 in our group. And I remember Jimmy DeYoung said, now you're probably wondering why we've taken our time to come to this place. He read my mind. He said, folks, where you're standing right now is the shepherd's field. The shepherd's field. In Bethlehem, this is the place where sheep have been raised for 5,000 years. Remember, this is where David raised his sheep when he was a boy. David was from the town of Bethlehem. So was he was a young man. Most likely when he killed the lion and the bear with his bare hands, it was here at the shepherd's field. I thought, wow, it's incredible. 
He said, but not only did that event occur here, this, my friends, is where those, in, those shepherds heard the angelic announcement that night that Jesus was born. I hadn't even thought that anybody could possibly pinpoint the field where this would have happened. He said, this is what archaeologists call an A-plus site. To get an A-plus rating in archaeology, you have to have affirmation from Scripture, confirmation from history, and it has to be attested to by tradition. And he said, in this place, in this case, all three point to this being the spot. There's really no question about it. And as he said it, almost as, as if to validate what he was saying, here came a young Bedouin boy, and behind him was a mingled flock of sheep and goats following him. He said, look, right there, that's been going on for five millennia here. And I got thinking, this is amazing. What would have been like that night? And you think about these, these shepherds. They're out there watching sheep. I mean, they do this night after night. And all of a sudden, they're out there. And who knows if they're talking about local chariot races or, you know, politics or what they'd heard in the synagogue the, re- the, the, the week before, or whatever. They're just talking like you and I would. And all of a sudden, <laughs> I mean, the place lights up like a high-definition football game all of a sudden, and they're in fear. Isn't it amazing when angels show up? What's the first thing angels always say? Fear not. Don't be afraid. Well, why do they say that? Just think of you saw an angel out in the middle of nowhere. Don't be afraid. Fear not. I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Boy, you know, I I was thinking about that. In fact, Brother Dion brought out something I'd never thought about before. He said, why were they raising sheep here? Some have said, well, it probably wasn't December. You know, the historic church, the traditional church made up that date, and we don't really know. No, it's true. We don't really know if Jesus was born in December or not. We don't know. He said, but there is some historic evidence it could have happened that way. Now, some say, well, if it was December, why would they be raising sheep in December? He said, folks, listen, Bethlehem served a specific purpose in the raising of sheep. And he pointed to the city skyline of Jerusalem. He said, sheep being raised here were taken there for sacrifice in the temple. Most likely, these were shepherds who were kosher shepherds. They were authorized by the priest for the upbringing of these sheep. And remember, the sheep had to be without blemish, without spot, and there, there were specific rituals they had to go through, specific standards they had to meet in order for these sheep to be offered in the temple. Never thought about that. Think about the angel's announcement that night. I, I noticed the content of the message here. He says, I bring you good tidings of great joy. Good tidings, that's the word gospel, good news. That's the content of the message. It's good news. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That's the good news. And notice, I bring you good tidings which shall be to all people. Notice the extent of the message. This wasn't just for the shepherds that night. It wasn't just for the Jewish people. So you have the content and the extent. But then notice the intent of the message. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. What does a Savior do? Well, if I said to you, what does a painter do? They paint. What does a builder do? They build. He builds. What does a Savior do? He saves. In fact, this is parallel to the passage in Matthew where Mary and Joseph find out she's expecting a child. Joseph knows he's not the father. He's beside himself. He can't believe she'd be unfaithful, but she must have been. How else would she be expecting a child? It wasn't his. 
and he's, he's distressed, and he's deciding, what am I going to do? And you remember the night the angel Gabriel appears to him and says, Joseph, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. She shall bring forth a son. Oh, wait, this is, this is pre, this is pre uh, sonograms. You're going to have a boy. Oh, and, and you all remember picking out names for kids? And my wife and I didn't find out until they were born what we were having, so we always had to pick out a boy name and a girl name. You know, remember 30,000 names? And so, thou should call his name Jesus. They don't need a sonogram, and they don't have to have a baby book. They know the gender, and they know the name. You call his name Jesus, why? For he shall save his people from their sins. That's the intent of the message. The extent is to all people. The content is good news. Imagine being there that night. You know, I mentioned I grew up in a Methodist church. I, I went to the Pittman United Methodist Church when I grew up as a kid in New Jersey, and, and Pittman was named after an old circuit-riding evangelist, Charles Pittman. He was an evangelist kind of in the, in the vein of Peter Cartwright. He would go everywhere across southern New Jersey preaching the gospel. In fact, my, my dad's hometown, Pittman, they had a camp meeting there called The Grove they used to come out from Philadelphia by train and attend fiery camp meetings in Pittman. It was a gospel-preaching center. Uh, the, the hymn, In the Garden, was written in Pittman. Miles Austin wrote that song, I Come to the Garden Alone, right there in the town of Pittman, New Jersey. My dad was born in that town. I was born in the next town over, Sewell. And boy, there was quite a heritage there. But by the time I was growing up in that Methodist church, they did no longer believe the Bible. In fact, the ministers under whom I was trained were absolutely schooled in modernism, theological liberalism. They had been taught that Jesus was not conceived of a virgin, but that he was the offspring of a Roman soldier and Mary. They didn't believe in a bodily resurrection. They said that Jesus only rose again in spirit. They didn't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. They didn't believe in the inspiration of Scripture. I thought about the impact those ministers would have on my family. What? When I was just a boy, they said, Richie would be a fine minister one day. I don't know how they thought that. I was the reserve kid. I was the shy kid. I was the only kid in my class in speech therapy. And uh, so I, I was not your likely candidate to be, a, to be a preacher. I thought, if I could have just transported some of those Methodist ministers back to the time of, of this occurrence, they might have believed in the virgin birth then. Can you imagine the angel announcing this from heaven? By the way, who is the angel of the Lord? He's not identified here, although, think about this, what you know theologically. Anytime you see the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, who was speaking? Well, most often we say it was Christ, pre-incarnate. I was recently studying the account of Joshua and the people you know, going around the walls of Jericho, and the angel of the Lord spake to him, the angel of the Lord spake to him, and then it says, the Lord said to him, so pre-incarnate, Christ himself would show up in angelic form and make the announcement. Well, Jesus is in the manger at this point, so who's the one speaking? Is it possible that the role is assumed by God the Father? I don't know. I don't know for sure. I think about this when all of our children were born. Guess who got to make the announcement? I did. My wife did not feel like getting on the cell phone and saying, I just went through childbirth and I've given birth. And No, I got to be the one to call. And I will tell you, I was a very pleased papa to call and say, we just had a girl. Three times I went through, we just had a girl. And uh, calling the family. I remember the last time the baby was born, my wife said, uh, another daughter, are you okay with that? I said, well, we're not sending her back. Of course I'm okay with that. <laughs> Who made the announcement? Well, all we know is the angel of the Lord. We don't know if it's God himself, the Father or not, but we know 
That announcement came from heaven. So that's the voice from heaven at Jesus' birth. Go back a book. Go to Mark chapter 1, if you will. Mark chapter 1. There's another time the voice was heard from heaven. This is at Jesus' baptism. Mark 1, pick up in verse 9. We'll look at verses 9 through 11. Mark 1, 9 through 11. came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in Jordan. Jordan here not being the country of Jordan, but the Jordan River. Straightway coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens open, the spirit like a dove descending upon him. There came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now you notice there are three distinct people mentioned here, not counting John the Baptist, okay? First is Jesus. I circled his name in verse 9. Then in verse 10, the spirit. And then in verse 11, not as obvious, but this, notice the, the phrase, a voice from heaven. Okay, we know who Jesus is. The Spirit is capitalized. Which Spirit does that refer to? The Holy Spirit. Okay. The voice from heaven. Okay, now we're not told directly who the voice from heaven is, but you really have two choices, folks. The voice says, this is my beloved Son. So if a person says, that's my Son, I know we're living in confused times, but to what God said in the beginning. He made the male and female. So if someone says, that's my son, the person speaking will either be a father or a mother. Well, the voice is coming not Mary. How do we know that? She's on earth. How do we know that? She'll be there when Jesus performs his first miracle. She'll be there when Jesus is crucified. She's there after he rises. Mary's on earth. So the one speaking has to be the father. Yeah, the heavenly father. This is my beloved. One time I was in Ohio for meetings, and the pastor and I went to the hospital to make some visits, among other visits we were making that day. He said, now this man's in critical condition. He said, even as clergy, they're only letting one of us in the room at a time. So I said, do you mind waiting in the waiting room while I go see the man? I said, sure will. What's his name? I'll be praying for him. So I'm in the lobby, uh, waiting room area, and I find out another person comes in, and this is the man's sister. She had to leave so the pastor could go visit and I said, I heard about your brother, and I'm so sorry. And I said, listen, I, am, I want you to know we're praying for your brother. She said, well, thank you. She said, we'll take prayer from anybody we can get right now. And I thought that was kind of a backhanded thank you. And I found out later why, uh, why she said that. She was a Jehovah's Witness. And when she knew the Baptist pastor was stopping by to pray for her brother, she wasn't exactly thrilled. And she said, well, you know, we don't exactly believe like you do. I said, yeah, I played along. Really? I said, "Um, where? In what ways? She said, well, for instance, we don't believe in the Trinity. And I knew that, of course. I said, I see. Why don't you believe in the Trinity? She said, well, it's preposterous to believe that God is one person but three. I mean, that just doesn't make sense. I remember I said to her, so uh, let me ask you this. How do you think the world got here? How do you think the universe originated? She said, well, God made it. I said, yeah, I agree. I said, how long did it take him to make it? She said, six days. I said, I agree. I said, now imagine if you and I were in some institution of higher learning today, some Ivy League school, or even just some regular state college, and we said that we believe in a six-day creation. They'd think we're nuts. She said, well, I'm sure they would. I said, what if some liberal professor said to you, well, how can you believe in a six-day creation? That doesn't make sense. She said, well, I believe it because God says it. I said, that's my answer to you about the Trinity. 
Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Romans eleven thirty three. God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. That's Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. You don't know those verses? You ought to memorize those, Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. You'll go to them often. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but the things which are revealed belong to us and to our children. There are things about God that are beyond our comprehension. Should that surprise you? How many of you have um, an aptitude when it comes to things mathematical? How many of you good at math? Anybody here like math? Okay. All right, how many of you studied calculus? Anybody studied calculus? Okay, if any of you dear people were to try to explain to me calculus, I would be completely lost. Okay? In fact, if you did Algebra 1, I'd probably be completely lost, but I went up to Trig in high school, all right? But I, I never had the very good mind for math. So if you tried to explain calculus to me, I would be lost. Can you imagine explaining calculus to your kindergarten child? The kindergartner said, that doesn't even make sense. I remember as a kid in elementary school seeing sixth graders get into introductory algebra, and they were adding letters. But how do you add letters? That just doesn't make sense. Well, you know something? This is why we teach at a basic level and we keep building and building and building. Imagine being God and trying to teach the complexities of your nature to the people you created. Folks, listen, I, I believe that the Trinity is one of the self-evident proofs that God revealed himself to man. Man did not create the concept of God. Some people say, well, man created the whole concept of God. It is inherent to orthodox, fundamental, historic Christianity, that God is one and yet three, the triune God. Who, in his right mind, would say, we believe in one God. Now, he exists as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. No human being would come up with that. I think it's an inherent proof that God revealed himself to us, and we did not come up with the concept of God. You know, I wish my Jehovah's Witness acquaintance could have been with me there, could have been with us. We could have been at Jesus' baptism because here Jesus comes and he comes up out of the water and the Spirit of God descends in the form of a dove upon him. And then a voice from heaven gives the ultimate validation. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. You know, have you ever heard political endorsements on ad ads? Oh, I know you did. I mean, your state was in the forefront of the news last year, both for, you know, the presidential election and then your special uh, senatorial elections, just exciting stuff, right? And, you know, you would hear these announcements, and the politician gets on and says, I am so-and-so, and I approve this message. And you think, well, better, it's about you, right? Imagine having the announcement from God himself, God the Father. This is my beloved son. That's my boy. That's the message at Jesus' baptism. So we have his birth, we have his baptism. But now I want you to jump over to Matthew chapter 17. Go back one more book, Matthew 17. Now we have Jesus' triumphal entry. We had our B's, we'll have our T's now. We have the triumphal entry and his transfiguration we'll get to in a minute. But uh, actually, I'm sorry, I'm, we have Jesus' transfiguration. I got to get to the transfiguration before the triumphal entry. So Jesus' transfiguration. Look with me at Matt, uh, Matthew 17, and I will pick up in verse number one. After six days, Jesus taketh, taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, bringeth them up to a high mountain apart and was transfigured before them. His face did shine as the sun. His raiment was white as the light. Behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias, 
that's the Greek name for Elijah, talking with him, then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, one for Elias, while he yet spake. Behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. Behold, a voice from the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And when his disciples heard it, they fell on their face, were sore afraid. Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, be not afraid. When they lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. Now imagine being here. They're up in a high mountain. We don't know which mountain. Now we know the tallest mountain in Israel is Mount Hermon, which is just under 10,000 feet tall. It's in the northern part of Israel. Out of it emanate the waters that form the Jordan River. Most likely up in that area, it's a high mountain. So he's up in the mountain, and as he's standing before them in his full human form, all of a sudden, he's, he's transfigured. He's transformed. Some of the young people, some of the kids might remember playing with Transformers as children. Transformers were these robot-like figures, and then you'd do certain things like you would do manipulating a Rubik's Cube, and all of a sudden it transforms into a car or a tank or a rocket ship. It's transformed. It goes from one form to an entirely different form. What happens here is it's as if the, the curtain is pulled back, and you see Jesus just like you see revealed in the book of the Revelation. You see him in all his glory. And all of a sudden, in company with Jesus are two people, Moses and Elijah. Interesting, nobody has to announce who they are. They just know. Moses and Elijah had died centuries before this. Who was Moses? Leader of Israel. Miracle worker. Elijah? Oh, he was the one who called Israel back to repentance after they'd turned into idolatry. They'd turned away from God into apostasy. He, too, was a miracle worker. And now here's Jesus and and Peter, I, he's always the one to speak his mind. He says, this is incredible. We have the three great miracle workers here. Lord, this is too good to pass up on. Let's build three tabernacles. They were used to doing this during the Feast of Tabernacles. Let's camp out here, and, and we'll make one for you and one for Moses, one for Elijah. And boom, the voice speaks from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You hear him. And when he, again, it's my son, so the one speaking is obviously the father. And when they look up from their cowering, Moses is gone and Elijah is gone, but Jesus is still there, Howbeit, he's now back in his regular human form. What's the point of all this? I remember seeing a documentary on PBS. <laughs> Don't get your theology from PBS. A documentary on PBS speaking of the Old Testament Jew was given... Uh, I'm sorry, the Jews were given the Old Testament scriptures. And then to the Christian church was given the New Testament. And then to the Muslim was given the Quran. They were, they were trying to make the case that there were various levels of illumination from God, of inspiration from God. They said, well, Jesus is mentioned in the Quran. It's true. But he's not proclaimed as the one and only Son of God. They made a mistake just like Peter did, albeit Peter meant no harm, but he said, this is incredible. He thought he was elevating Jesus by saying, you're on the same level as Moses and Elijah. And that's where the father speaks up, no, no, he is my beloved son. And in him I'm well pleased. Of whom humanly could it be said that God the father was well pleased in that individual? Apart from God's righteousness, we have no righteousness. All our righteousnesses are as what? Filthy rags. 
but of Jesus, he said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. That's why in order for us to be saved, we have to have God's righteousness imputed to us, which is exactly why Jesus became one of us. He who knew no sin was made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Boy, I wish those PBS producers could have been there to hear that. I wish the liberal ministers under whom I was trained could have been there to hear that. But you know, in Jesus' birth, Jesus' baptism, and Jesus' transfiguration, though they were insightful, though they were important events, Peter says, you and I have something even better. Go to one more incident. It's in John chapter 12. And it is Jesus' triumphal entry, John chapter 12. I'll pick up the reading in verse number 12, John 12, 12. Follow along with me from there if you would. John 12, verse 12. On the next Much people that were come to the feast when they heard Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet him and cried, Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. You probably know, your Bible may have a note there, the word Hosanna means save us now, succor now, give us the victory now. Verse 14, Jesus, when he'd found a young ass, sat thereon as it's written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, thy king cometh sitting on an ass's colt. You may notice the reference in the margin of your Bible there, Zechariah 9, 9. That is a direct recitation, a direct quote from Zechariah 9, verse 9, and everyone knew that was a messianic psalm. That's a, that's a psalm connected to the Messiah. Verse 16, these things understood not his disciples at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then remembered they that these things were written of him and that they had done these things unto him. The people, therefore, that was with him when he called Lazarus out of his grave and raised him from the dead, bear record, for this cause the people met him, for they heard he had done this miracle. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, Perceive ye how ye prevail nothing? Behold, the world has gone after him. There were certain Greeks among them which came to worship at the feast. Same came therefore to, P- to Philip, which was a Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip cometh and telleth Andrew. Again, Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Let me just pause there. Up to this point, you remember, Jesus had repeatedly said, my hour's not yet come. His disciples had said, look, really, why, why do you just do these things to local gatherings? Why don't you show yourself to the world? His own brothers, who had not believed on him prior to his resurrection, his own brothers, uh, you, you all remember that Jesus had four brothers and sisters. There are four brothers whose names are given in the Gospels. We know one of those was James. And he had sisters. Now the Bible says the four names of the brothers and sisters. So Jesus was from a family of at least seven children. We don't know how many sisters there were. Four brothers and sisters plus Jesus, okay? So his brothers often said to him, why why don't you just reveal yourself to the world if you're really the Messiah? And he repeatedly had said, my time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. Now what does he say? The hour has come. The hour of what? the hour he's going to reveal the purpose for which he's come to earth. So pay attention. This is an important event that's about to occur. The hour has come, verse 23, that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone, but if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it. He that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me. Where I am, there there also shall my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this cause came I unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. 
The people, therefore, that stood by and heard it said it thundered. Others said an angel spoke to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. Is it interesting that all four of the Gospels give us the account of the triumphal entry, what we know as Palm Sunday? All four of them mention this event. You know, not all the Gospels give every detail of Jesus' life. They all mention Jesus' triumphal entry. However, only the book of John gives us this particular detail. The voice from heaven as Jesus says, Father, glorify thy name. Now, it's very normal for you and me to pray. Let me ask you, when was the last time you got an audible response to your prayer? Never. But Jesus did. I have glorified it. I will glorify it again. What did the voice sound like? We don't know. Some, though, said it thundered, so it must have been a mighty voice. It obviously was heavenly because they said an angel spoke to him. Jesus said, the voice didn't come for my sake, came for yours. A validation from God the Father himself. Why does John mention this? The other Gospels don't. You, you probably remember each of the four Gospels had a unique purpose. Matthew was a decidedly Jewish flavor. Uh, he reveals the soon-coming king. Mark was the first of the four books written. It's very fast-moving, the words straightway, anon, immediately, fast action. It's the shortest of the four Gospels. Mark reveals the suffering servant. Luke is written, the only one written by a Gentile, the beloved physician, Luke, and it reveals the, the son of man incarnate deity, God in the flesh. Very interesting. Those three are called the synoptic gospels. Synoptic, uh, sin like synchronize your watch or synonym means the same. Optic like I wear contacts. Those are optical lenses to correct my vision. Optic means to see. Synoptic means to see the same. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all synoptic gospels. They are um, traditional biography in that sense. They reveal basically the life of Jesus and his doings. John is more of an apologetic John reveals the deity of Jesus Christ. Now, you can deduce that Jesus is God from any of the Gospels, but John sets out to show you that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that so believing you might have life through his name. And that's why this one, the book of John, gives us a detail that the others don't focus on. See, Jesus is not just the Son of Man, he's the Son of God, deity incarnate. I want to go back to 2 Peter with you. We'll finish here. Think about this. Well, those liberal theologians, the Jehovah's Witness lady I met that day at the hospital, countless unsaved people that I've talked to that said, well, I believe Jesus was a good man. I, I don't know that he was God. Any of them, I would love to have transported in time back to any of these four events. But Peter would say to me, if he had the opportunity, Rich, you've got something better than that. For do you remember when Abraham spoke to the man in hell, the rich man who lifted up his eyes, being in torments? And he said, Father Abraham, send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I'm tormented in this flame. And he said, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they won't, be, they won't believe even though one rose from the dead. What did he mean, Moses and the prophets? They had died centuries before. Oh, the rich man knew what he meant. By the way, this is why I believe the rich man was a religious rich man. He didn't say Moses and the prophets. They died years ago. He knew exactly what he meant. He'd been to synagogue. It was the writings of Moses and the prophets. See, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by what? The word of God, Romans 10, 17. 
If they don't believe the writings of God, they wouldn't believe if one rose from the dead. Folks, by the way, somebody did rise from the dead. And it's he who's giving us this very message through Peter. Peter says, you and I have something better. Go back to 2 Peter 1, verse 16 again. We've not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the coming and power of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. I've just been memorizing uh, 1 John chapter 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon, which our hands have handled of the word of life, <laughs> declare we unto you. He, John says, you know, we, we put our arms around Jesus. We looked at him with our eyes. We gazed upon his face. We heard his voice. This is not some hearsay. This was not some old wives' fables. This is not some conjuring. First-hand experience. Peter said, yeah, we had that. In fact, he goes on to say, we were with him in the Holy Mount. Verse 18, which came from heaven, we heard in that Holy Mount. And then he says, but you folks share something with us. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. How in the world can this be better than any of those four experiences? Well, he goes on to say in verse 20, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scriptures of any private interpretation. It's not personal opinion. Verse 21, the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. I remember sitting in my Bible class when I was in college, and our instructor talking about the term there is like a, the wind moving a sail. And the wind blows and the sail fills up and then the boat is borne along. Holy man of God speak as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. You see, experiences can be forgotten, falsified, or misinterpreted. But if you want something to be legal, you put it in print. My three sisters and I each have legal power of attorney to act on my mom's behalf right now. Well, that's not just an oral thing. It's not just mom said so. It's in print. Lately, we've been taking, taking care that all legal matters are prepared for the time of her passing. We, we have a trust set up, you know, and we don't want things to go to probate. And there's a title to the house. There's a title to the car and all that kind of stuff. And guess what? It's all in print. You know why? Hearsay can be misinterpreted or lied about. But when things are in print, they're validated. Folks, we have a more sure word of prophecy. I said at the beginning, you and I have something that the early apostles didn't have. You know what that is? The completed revelation of Jesus Christ. We have all 66 books. Everything God wants us to know for life and eternity is revealed that we might know just what we need to know in this life. No wonder he says, study to show thyself approved unto God. A concluding thought from history. World War II. Island of Okinawa had been taken from the Japanese by the Allied soldiers. Clarence Hall was a war correspondent. He was walking through this particular village in Shimabuk, which was uh, named Shimabuk, which was unlike any of the other villages they'd come to in Okinawa. This particular village was pristine, was clean. Everybody in the village was literate and genteel. That was not the case in other villages on the island of Okinawa. He's walking along with a tough army sergeant. When the soldiers had rolled into town, two men had come out and bowed to welcome the Americans. They welcomed them, greeted them, in fact, as fellow Christians. They assumed that all Americans were Christians. So, army intel sent for the chaplain and 
other intelligence officers, and they began to dig. What, what, is, what gives with this village? They found out 30 years before, a missionary on his way to Japan had stopped in Okinawa. In his very brief stay there, he had had dealings with two men from Shimabuk, Soshe Kina, K-I-N-A, Soshe Kina, and his brother Moyan. In the conversation, the missionary had walked them through the plan of salvation, had led both men to saving faith in Jesus Christ. He did not have any discipleship material with him. He was traveling at the time to Japan. Everything had been shipped ahead. All he had with him was his own personal copy of the Bible. He gave that Bible to those two men and told them, everything you need to know is here. That was the only contact those men had had with any outsiders, and especially any Americans, for 30 years. They had begun to read that Bible every day. Soshi was the head man of the village. Moyan was the chief teacher. They began to make handwritten copies of the Bible. They began to teach the people how to read so they could read the Bible. They taught it in their school to their children. Its precepts became the basis for the laws of the village. It wasn't long before every man, woman, and child in that village came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And when these two men went out to welcome the American and allied forces, they assumed that all other Americans were Christians. It had led to literacy in the village, cleanliness, and gentility. This tough army sergeant walking along in the company of Clarence Hall saw all this, and when he heard the story, he said, can't believe it. We've been trying to make the world over through force. Here are a couple old guys. Had the Bible, set out to be like Jesus. Look what happened. He said, maybe we've been trying to make the world over by the wrong kind of weapons. Now, this is not to say we don't need military. I thank the Lord for all of you who have been willing to serve your country or have, or maybe currently serving your country. Thank you for doing so. Power is necessary for us to maintain freedom. But we all know this, force doesn't change minds and hearts. Only God can do that. And you know what has the, the power to change a life? It's this book right here. You say, I would love to have gone back to any of those four incidents in the life of Jesus. Me too. But Peter said, friend, you got something better. And if you really believe that, when was the last time you just opened it up on a given weekday to let God speak to your soul. When I was traveling as a college rep for Pensacola years ago, I remember it was 1991, there was a report that came out in USA Today. They used to have a little spotlight on the front. This is back when people read printed newspapers. And I remember seeing this little spotlight. It said, television habits in, a, in the USA. The average American was watching 7.3 hours of television a day in 1991. Whew, that's like a work day. I think people would watch the news before they go to work, and after they come home from work, they'd eat supper, and then they'd sit down. And well, I don't know that everyone's glued to the set for seven hours, but 7.3 hours. I thought, I wonder how many people read the Bible every day. Well, it just so happened the same year Christianity Today, the evangelical magazine, did a survey. How many Christians read the Bible every day in America? 18%. That's less than one out of five. In the middle 2000s, the aughts, 
new study came out, television habits in America. 5.2 hours a day for American citizens. And it dropped two hours. I thought, well, that's impressive. Well, then I found out why. Social media. Now people were spending time on social media instead of TV. How about Bible consumption? I continued over a period of years just asking, how many of you read the Bible every day? It was not a scientific survey. I just have people bow their head and lift their hand. Almost without fail, it's about 20% or fewer. I want to say something as we wrap up this wonderful day together, and I've really enjoyed it with you. I want to make a statement. I wish you'd evaluate my statement. I'm not asking you for an amen right now. I'm not asking for you to get on board with me. I just want you to evaluate my statement. I don't believe you'll ever be the Christian God fully intended you should be if you don't have a regular daily quiet time. Now, let me qualify my statement. I didn't say you can't be a Christian. The majority of Christians don't read the Bible every day. Let me go further. I didn't say you can't be a growing Christian. I was a growing Christian before I started reading the Bible every day. I was hearing preaching. I was being discipled. You can be a growing Christian and not be reading the Bible every day. But I will say this, and I believe it with all my heart. You'll never be the Christian God fully intends you should be if you're not in the Word every day. Why do I say that? It's not my opinion. Jesus visiting the home of Mary and Martha. The Bible says Martha was cumbered about much serving, came to him and said, Lord, dost thou not care? My sister hath left me to serve alone. Better therefore that she help me. Jesus answered and said, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful, and Mary hath chosen that good part which shall not be taken away from her. And what was the good part? It's in Luke 10, verses 38 to 42, if you want to check it out yourself. She was sitting at Jesus' feet hearing his word. I heard a well-intentioned preacher recently say, well, when I was a kid, I tried to have devotions, and he said, you know, I kind of gave up on that. This is a preacher. He said, I realized that was a rather legalistic approach to the whole thing. He said, I think we should be more relational in our interaction with God. Okay, I do not fault him for that. I absolutely agree with that. He said, so I decided I'm not going to be rigid about it. I'll just spontaneously spend time with God. But here was my problem with that. I've been married to the same woman for 28 years. I love Angela with all my heart. I love my wife more than I ever have. I will tell you this. There's sometimes we will lean up against the headboard in our trailer in our queen bed at night, and we'll just talk because although we have been in the same 400 square feet all day or most of the day, we've not really communicated. I love her. She's the most important human being to me in the world, but we have to make time to talk. If you know that's important in marriage, how much more important is that with you and God? I appeal to you. Let's make time to hear from heaven.